want to start with a little trivia question this morning. We will see uh, if you guys can do this or not. Um, the trivia question is a Broadway trivia question, okay? So we'll see how many of you are lovers of plays. Uh, in, the history of <laughs> in the history of Broadway, there are three shows that have made a billion dollars or more in box office. And it's really interesting because it's not close. There's three that are above a billion and the next highest is like 600 million, right? So there's three big guys that have made a ton of money over their run. Can anyone guess which three shows have made a billion dollars? You can do one at a time. Phantom of the Opera is one of them, right? Because it's run forever. Wicked and the Lion King are the other two. Very good, Cassie. These are the three shows. Lion King, Phantom of the Opera, and Wicked. Those are the three shows that have run. Um, Chicago's close. It's like seventh on the list or sixth on the list. No. Cats wasn't, yeah, Cats wasn't on there at all. I don't know if it's just, I mean, this is not inflation adjusted, so. Um, anyway, Wicked was one of these shows. It just recently became the third member of this club. Uh, it just had its 15th anniversary. If you've never seen this play, it is the story of the Wicked Witch of the West and how she became Wicked, right? Before, she was just a nor normal average green person, I guess. And then eventually she becomes nasty. And it's interesting to me because the Wicked phenomenon, it seems to be part of a bigger cultural shift where we like to understand our villains, Right? It used to be that you could have a guy show up and twirl his mustache and put, you know, a girl tied up in ropes on the train tracks and you didn't care about their motivation, right? They were just evil. It was okay for your supervillains to want to destroy the world because that's just what supervillains do. But now we want to know more. We want to know why are they that way? And so there are all of these stories or these traditions that we retell from the perspective of the bad guy, right? Even if it's the monsters in your closet. Because we want to empathize with them. We want to understand. And really part of the reason we're doing is it's a rich storytelling technique. It is a way to look at uh, the other side of the coin. It's because we know that very few people just are born evil, right? They're, you know, I don't know, maybe there's you know, the occasional Hitler or whatever, right? But occasionally you have somebody that has some, usually people have good reasons for why they do bad things. And when we look at our stories through that perspective, it can help um, enlighten us to what's going on in our own lives and the world around us. We have a story that's kind of like that today as we continue a sermon series about G who Jesus spends time with in the book of John. So this has been called Next to Jesus. And we've had all these different characters that have been face-to-face -to, -face to Jesus in the book of John. And today we're going to talk about uh, this woman that washes Jesus' feet. But we're not going to talk about her because John is not interested in her. This is a uh, fascinating story we've often heard. Uh, sometimes the stories get conflated. We're not sure if this happened like two times or if it happened once or what exactly happened. The stories have different details. Uh, John talks about Mary, the, um, the sister of Lazarus, as being this woman that washes Jesus' feet with her hair. Uh, well, actually, here I think it's just with perfume. I'm getting confused myself. There's stories with hair. There's stories with perfume. They all get kind of conflated in our mind. But usually when we preach it, we talk about the woman. 
But John does not talk about the woman. He takes this opportunity to tell us a little bit the story of Judas. As we read this passage, John's focus when Jesus' feet are anointed is what is going on in Judas' brain. And it's kind of an interesting uh, thing for us to look like. What was it like to be next to Jesus if you're getting ready to betray him? And so we hear a little bit of Judas' story in the sermon this morning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So there is the hair. Okay, I was right. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to keep himself to what was put in, uh, used to keep for himself what was put in it, into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Um, it's a funny, it's a funny little story. Uh, I think that we can look at in a couple ways and see some interesting things in. Um, when it comes to the character of Judas, I always want to know more than the Bible tells me, right? Like, was this guy always such a pain in the you know rear end, or were there times where Judas used to be good? How did Jesus call Judas, right? Where did he find him from? Were there redeeming character characteristics or attributes, or was he truly just picked because he was the scoundrel, right? Did the other eleven sit around and go, "Why did this guy get included?" You know, or were there times that he did good things? How does Jesus respond to the feeding of the 5,000? When Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, what does Judas think about it? These are all things I want to know, okay? Maybe that is my postmodern villain-loving brain, right, trying to kick in and say, I want to know more about this. But his character is fascinating to me because I think at some point along the way, Judas had a good reason for sticking around, one of the things we do know about Judas is after he betrays Jesus, he is overcome with regret and guilt for what he has done. That doesn't strike me as a purely evil guy. It doesn't strike me as a guy who was just there for the betrayal. It seems like Judas at some point was a good guy. At some point he cared. In fact, he still cared even after he gave Jesus over to the officials because he felt deep regret and sorrow why did I do that? And so how does he get here? How does he become the kind of person that does the things that Judas does? And I think it can help us to make sure how we become the kind of people we want to become. One of the things that Judas does is, and this is really important, Judas is willing to put a spiritual mask over a selfish desire, right? When he comes and he wants to keep this money for himself, and he goes, why wasn't this given to the poor? He actually makes a great argument, right? 
I think some of us could imagine being in a church budget committee meeting, right? And this question would be asked. We spent how much on the parking lot? What about the poor in the world, right? These are the kind of debates we get into in church when we talk about how we're going to use our money is what does it go to? There's uh, some of us that always hates like paying the electricity bill when there are people dying of starvation, right? And we could just do church in the dark and feed more people, right? There's kind of that thought that sometimes goes through some of our minds. And so it's important to see here that there is a spiritual righteous thing that happens where Judas says this money could be used a better way. And so he masks his selfish concern in a spiritual concern. And this is a good way to get our conscience to shut up, right? Have you ever, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but has there ever been a time where you've been able to take your selfishness or your sinful desire and mask it in some kind of compassion or doctrine that makes it feel better to not do what you want to do, right? Give you a few examples. There's maybe that time that you, uh, you feel like you should invite your friend to church, share your faith with them. But Jesus says to love other people and to treat other people as you want to be treated. And I don't like for my non-Christian friends to try to ask me to go to their stuff. So maybe it'd be more loving to just not invite them, right? Um, maybe it's, you know, we'd really love to do this event at the church, but it's going to probably attract maybe some homeless people and maybe some people that aren't safe for kids to be around. And so we just shouldn't do it because if we bring in all those new people, we can't really vet them. And who knows, we've got to keep our kids safe. And so we're definitely not going to ever reach out to people who aren't kind of nice, safe looking people like us. Maybe we say, um, something, oh, this is my, one of my favorite um, there's this classic quote from, I think it's Francis of Assisi. He says, go and preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And this is a nice quote. It means to go and live by your actions. My experience is the modern church has used this as a reason to never, ever, ever use words, right? Well, Francis of Assisi said, do it without using words. So that's why I never use words when I share my faith, right? Um, Maybe it's, you know, I really would like to help that panhandler, but God calls me to be a steward of the things that I have. And so I'm feeling called to be generous, but you know what? That's probably not good stewardship, and what are they going to use the money for, and blah, 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 right? And if we're not careful, there are all of these situations. Uh, oh, I have a good relationship with God, and I'm personally deeply connected with God, so I never need to confess my sins to another person because me and God are right, so why would I have to worry about confessing our sins one to another like James talks about, right? There are all of these places where we can come up with a great scriptural reason for not doing the thing that we don't want to do. And it is a way, and this is weird, we sometimes use the Bible to squash God speaking into our life, right? This could have happened all throughout Scripture. I know you want to welcome the Gentiles, God, but really, I've read Leviticus. That's just not right. And there are times where we have to distinguish between, are you really trying to keep God's word and do God's will? Or are you just instead trying to give yourself an excuse for just not doing the thing that you don't want to do? Right? Because there are times, I know I do this, I, I don't hope you do this, but I 
want to not be by myself as well, right? There are times where I'm like, I know this is the right thing to do. And I start scanning my brain for what's a somewhat Jesus-like answer that'll make me not have to do that thing I don't want to do, right? And this is what Judas has made a practice of. I want to steal what can be a godly facade or excuse that I can slap on my stealing to make me not feel so bad about ignoring God's conviction in my life. And this one's pretty egregious, but we do it in smaller ways. And you wonder along the way, what excuses did Judas make, right? Well, the Bible talks about, you know, not muzzling the ox as he threshes the grain. This is the uh, example that Paul uses to say that God's minister should be paid, right? So maybe he had scriptures for why taking a little bit of money out to, you know, reward him for his ministry was appropriate or okay. And so he's masking his bad behavior with something else. Uh, The second thing we find here is that Judas has allowed just selfishness to overcome his life. Um, maybe Judas started by just blindly stealing from the treasury, but my guess is, is it started as something smaller, right? I'm guessing that there were little ways that he started to do this. Maybe something. Uh, maybe he borrowed a few dollars to do something, and I'll pay it back. And then he never paid it back, and nobody noticed. And he was like, oh, that's interesting. Right? Very rarely do we get into big, bad stuff that just happen. Usually it's a little bit at a time. It's one step at a time towards going to what we shouldn't do. And Judas, somewhere along the way, has allowed that to take over. And he's become selfish, and he's become an embezzler, and he's just willing to steal from Jesus. If you really think about this, this is brazen, Right? Here is a guy who has a little bit of a habit of reading people's minds, right? You're hanging out with Jesus, and he often seems to know what people are thinking. And you think that, like, he's not going to notice that this money has gone missing. But Judas has allowed himself to go into this step by step. Jesus' response is very fascinating. It, uh, there's a couple of fr- sentences here that will par- people parse out uh, in a lot of debates. Uh, you've maybe heard this phrase, the poor will always be with you. This can be used several ways. I've heard some people use this as the excuse why we shouldn't help the poor, right? We should not try to end poverty because Jesus said the poor will always be with you. So ending poverty is a silly idea. What Jesus said, it won't work. He said there always are going to be poor people. And so we shouldn't even try, right? I don't find that to be a particularly spiritual way of reading the passage, but that's what's there. Other people say that the, the emphasis is on the back end. The poor will always be with you. My people will always be defined as those who care for the poor, right? And so it's more of a positive spin. He's saying, you, my disciples, you know my value so well that you'll always be around the poor. But as it comes to how Jesus is speaking to Judas and what he means, I think some of what he's talking about here is a priority thing. Um, I think you could argue that Jesus is to a degree talking about... um, how sentimentality is okay, that sometimes we can do things that are grand, beautiful gestures, and that's not a problem, right? The part of Judas's thing here is total pragmatism. That's not practical to use that much money on perfume. And Jesus goes, you know what? Sometimes we can have those kinds of shows of 
of love. I mean, we talk about this with our theme of the feast, right? Feasting is a common uh, metaphor in scripture for when God brings people to enjoy his goodness. And it's okay to have a big holiday meal like Thanksgiving and enjoy it. And nobody goes, this is impractical. If we had bought a smaller turkey, we could have fed the poor, right? That's not what we have to say because there are times to be thankful to God for what he's done. But I think even more than that, there is a focus here, a priority thing. Jesus says, Mary has the right priorities, Judas. These poor people will always be with you and they will still be here a week from now. I will not. And it is okay for this woman to have devotion to God before she has devotion to ministry. That's kind of a weird phrase, right? Are there ever times that you are more devoted to doing God's will than you are devoted to God? Are there other times that you are more interested in ministering to other people than you are to caring for your own spiritual life? All right. <laughs> That's not something preachers like to talk about from the pulpit because we're very guilty of that sometimes, right? I had a, a mentor that called it doing ministry without God. Where we are so interested in serving others that we forget that the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second greatest command is to love other people as yourself. When we get that mixed up, we become a really powerful humanitarian organization, but we don't become the church anymore, right? We're able to serve other people, but it's not based in a relationship with God. We talked with the men about Abraham and his willingness to sacrifice Isaac, the story in the Hebrew Bible where God asks a man to, to kill his son. And he's about to do it, and God goes, no, 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 I was just testing you. Stop. Don't do that. But Abraham showed that he was far more interested in God's will than even his own child. And that that's actually a holy thing, according to Scripture. That there is a priority there. And that ultimately, if he cared more about Isaac than God, then the faith he would give to Isaac is not, it's, it's a counterfeit faith, right? That ultimately, he wants to pass on to Isaac that God comes first. And so Judas is somewhat being reprimanded here you know what? I can come before even the ministry work you do. Your love for the Lord can be first. And if it's not first, then that ministry work starts to become hollow because it's not driving people towards a relationship with God. It's driving them towards humanitarianism, right? Which is great. Don't get me wrong. But that's different than the gospel. And so there's this question of what is of first importance for us? What do we care about most? Judas is clearly a man who has lost his way. He has forgotten what's of first importance to him. He has not figured out how to deal with these things. He's become selfish. He's allowed his morality to get in the way of actually being moral, right? There's all these little ways that he's lying to himself. And we see this interesting contradiction between him and Mary because Mary is sitting here literally, you know, like weeping and, and washing his feet and just so deeply committed to Jesus. And she is so thankful to Jesus, she will give a year's wages just to honor him in this way. And Judas sees that act of love and compassion and his heart is so cold that all he can do is criticize it and be judgmental of it. Uh, we live in a world of that kind of judgmentalism, right? 
Sometimes people will say something and other people immediately want to nitpick that statement of, well, the underlying presumption, you know, assumptions of your statement say that you really don't care about blah, 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 blah. We can't even, I mean, people can't even speak words of love or admiration without somebody criticizing, well, why did you admire that thing instead of something else? And this is what Judas does. I want us for a minute just to think about how you end up in those places. Because I don't think, like I said earlier, I don't think Judas started there, and I don't think Mary started there. And I think this is something that's really missing our culture. I've had these conversations a lot lately. Some people, it seems, even secular people, feel like you are born as one of these people. You're either born a Mary or you're born a Judas, right? And when evil people do evil stuff, it's because they're evil, whatever, right? Terrorists are just terrible people that have you know, mental problems, or they're born that way, or it's in their genetics. And the reason I'm not is because I wasn't born to be that kind of person. And I just don't think that's what the Bible tells us. I think there's lots of little decisions along the way that change you. I want to end with a couple of readings here um, from C.S. Lewis. And um, Lewis talks about these little decisions and how important they are and how they make a big difference. So um, these are both sections from uh, Mere Christianity, a couple different places. But just listen to the way he talks about how these little decisions work. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Another way that he puts this is that he, um, oh, where did it go? All right. Uh, my highlight disappeared. I hope I can find this quickly. Ah, there it is. So C.S. Lewis talks about this as an individual too. Now this is when he's talking about heaven and hell and how heaven and hell become reality. And he talks about how it's your little decisions that become the, the to you this way. And that leads to my second point. People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think that is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you the part of you that chooses into something a little different than what it was before and taking your life as a whole with all your um, innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. 
To be one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. So um, you're going to have a week this week, all right? I feel safe in proclaiming that is true, right? Hopefully we'll all have a full seven days coming in front of us, right? And the question is, what are you going to do with it? When something good happens, are you going to thank God for it or are you going to take credit for it? When something bad happens, are you going to say, God, help me through this or are you going to get bitter and angry about what has happened? I think the difference between Judas and Mary is that they were living a life of constantly making those little decisions. Judas, every time he turned around, was saying, I'll just steal a little bit here. I'll just make an excuse there. I'll be selfish there. And it slowly turns him into this terrible villain that we know. And Mary says, I am thankful to God. Thank you, God, for what you've done. We'll talk this week, I think, in our feast groups about her response to Lazarus being born. Are you going to allow gratitude and holiness to be the little decisions you make? Or are you going to let bitterness and anger be the little decisions you make? Because that is the difference between angels and demons, is how many choices they've made which way their whole life. Uh, Lewis will go on to defend that this is why heaven and hell aren't that terrible of concepts. It isn't God throwing neutral creatures into good and bad places. But the heaven and hell is ultimately hanging out with people that have made the bad decisions their whole life or the good decisions their whole life. Maybe you've seen an older person this way, right? We've all, Cassie, you work with older people some, right? You've seen people that are just lovely, sweet old folks, right? And that's because they've lived a life of trying to be sweet old folks. And then there's other folks that are nasty, mean old people, right? You've all, we've all met some of those. And it's probably because they've made a lifetime of making decisions that help make them nasty, mean people. Uh, which of those decisions are we going to make? Because um, we don't want to end up like Judas. All right, uh, we do a Q&A at the end of all of our sermons. Um, you guys have any questions about the passage, about the application, any of those things? I am Yeah, and this is certainly one way to understand Judas. Why does Judas do this? Because he is thinking it's going to be a violent military overthrowing. He even, he tells the, the, the he helps betray Jesus hoping that that will spur him to action, right? That it'll cause Jesus to pull out his sword and start fighting. This is sometimes the way people describe this. And I, I have um, sympathies to some of those thoughts. This passage actually is probably the greatest counter evidence in that while that may have been true, he's also stealing money out of the purse, right? And that suggests to us that there's something much darker. It's not like he had the best of, like him and Peter are both, pure-minded guys that had different motives, this suggests that Judas had something even had something dark in him and that he would steal. Does that make sense? So yeah, I, I have a lot of sympathies with some of those thoughts, but I think this passage is an interesting piece of data as we try to reconstruct that. Yeah. I think Jesus did know that he was a thief. Um, there's this kind of thing in the Bible with Judas where he kind of has a job to do. Does that make sense? There's this, there's this sentence where Judas is talking to Jesus right before he betrays him. And Jesus looks at him and he says, what you're going to do, go do quickly. 
And Jesus knew that he was going to die on the cross. And he knew that someone would betray him in order to kind of fulfill the scriptures. And so I think the Bible tells us he knew that was Judas. But he let him stay because he knew that he had to go to the cross. Does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah, that's fair. Kind of is about as best as I can get on that one, too. Yeah, he has this moment where he says, whoever dips uh, the bread in the bowl with me is one who betray me. And he kind of points out Judas at the Last Supper as being the, the one who betray. Yeah, I think as far as this idea of balance between the spiritual and the active being versus doing, right? Relationship with God versus ministry to others. How do we balance those things? Um I think it's helpful to look at Jesus' pattern, right? A lot of times what happens is Jesus does a miracle, helps a lot of people, and then immediately goes to a quiet place to rest, right? Goes up onto a mountain. Uh, we have these times where Jesus has times of solace, right? Uh, even before his death, he has time of quiet prayer with God before he goes into those things. Before his ministry, he has 40 days in the wilderness where he's spending time with the Lord to prepare himself for the ministry to come, right? So it's really, it's a seasons thing to me. Um, I emphasize this morning, the importance of that spiritual side and not just the ministry and doing side, because I know my personality, I know a lot of our personalities, I know the culture of our neighborhood and of our church. And I think missing the spiritual part is our more likely mistake. And I say that as a man who has overscheduled himself over the last six weeks and feels exhausted and has not created enough space for spiritual things. Uh, I've done a lot of ministry in the last six weeks without hardly a moment to breathe, right? And so maybe it's just autobiographical, but um, that's the risk for me because I'm just naturally a doer. Um, but yeah, I just think it's it's about on and off, and we need to work on that better with our sc- church schedule, right? So that when we do a big event like we did a couple weeks ago, there's kind of a week or two there for everybody to kind of calm down a little bit and have a little spiritual connection. Some way the men's retreat kind of does that doesn't do it for me because I'm running it, but you know, hopefully it does it for everybody else, that, for the guys that they're being fed as well as working. So, Any other questions? Yeah, let me just say a quick word. Um, yeah, Bible talk, I mean, James says if you confess your sins one to another, you will be healed. That you sharing your burden is a Christian way of dealing with it. And that that's not just giving it to God, but it's also getting help from your brothers and sisters. And that when you clam up and refuse to talk about your weakness... Uh, It does a couple things. It creates a culture. Preston talked about some of us will have good weeks and bad weeks this week, right? If if nobody ever confesses their sins, it creates a culture of perfectionism where we all sit around, look at each other, and think each other's perfect, and then everybody's terrified to admit they're not. And public confession of sin is helpful to say, nope, I'm messed up, and everybody else goes, oh, I'm messed up too. Cool. You know, like there's a little bit of camaraderie in it. Um, But there's also help in it, you know? Like if I know... I mean, this is a bad example. It's probably a good example. If I know, like, you know, I don't know. If somebody comes in, like, I really just struggle with gluttony. I know that I am eating in unspiritual ways. You know, we will not pick the Chinese buffet for where we go to lunch next week, right? You know, like, it sounds silly, but maybe that's a small way that we help each other out. Um, Or if somebody says, I'm really struggling with bitterness, and I hear them then starting to be bitter about something, I'll be like, listen, I think that's a fair emotion, but is this what's best for you right now? to be dwelling in that emotion. 
those are things we can help each other with when we confess. When we don't, we just don't know what's going on, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so why is it mentioned here and not other places? Some, so I think there's a couple things here. First of all, while Matthew you would think would be a good accountant, he's probably the last guy who's going to be an accountant. If you ask Jews of the first century, who can you trust to keep money? Tax collectors are last on their list because those guys are, are known embezzlers, right? Like the way their system worked is Rome said, you need to collect a hundred bucks a head. And then they came out and said, the fee is $250 a person. And they just scraped the rest off the top, right? So I doubt they would have trusted Matthew. Um, as far as why is this here and not in other places, as I read John, and this is just me, I think John is like settling some old scores in some of this stuff. There's this really weird passage where John and Peter run to the grave together. And John goes, the one whom Jesus loved got there first. But then Peter got there second, but was impetuous and ran in first. And I just hear this squabble like, I beat you there. You were always slow, Peter, but you were also always impetuous. So I waited and you rushed it. Like I just hear all of these um, little things. John does give us those details. And I, my understanding is that John writes his gospel with the other three in hand. And so he is trying to give us details he thought was important that were left out. And that's why we get some of these stories that do that. Uh, the, the three, um, them making fish after the resurrection. That's only in John. And I think that's because John says that's something we can't miss. It's such an important story. And some of John's gospel, I think, is, is filling in the holes that he felt like were in the gospel narratives otherwise. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, this so this is one of my favorite details when you compare Gospels. Um, John tells us that it was Peter who was sent in to prepare the table, right, for the Last Supper. The other Gospels tell us that there was a fight over the seating arrangement, right? What that means, if you put it together, is Peter went in and he set up the seating arrangement, him and John, right, made sure that they were right next to Jesus. And the other guys go, what's the deal? Why do I always sit at the other end of the table, right? Like you can see like those personality conflicts that were there um, with those guys. All right, any other questions? All right, we've got one more song and then we'll be... Uh